Today on the podcast, we have a very special guest. Stephen Petro is the author of the new book, Stupid Things I Won't Do When I Get Old. He's an award-winning journalist and book author who's best known for his Washington Post and New York Times essays on aging, health, and civility. He's also an opinion columnist for USA Today, where he writes about civil discourse and manners. Stephen also had a 2019 TED Talk, Three Ways to Practice Civility, and it has been viewed nearly 2 million times and translated into 16 languages. He's a much sought after public speaker, and you're likely to hear him when you stream NPR or maybe a TV network. In today's interview with Stephen, we dive deep into aging, our own personal lives, the important role of intergenerational relationships. We talk about mental health concerns like depression and suicide, about the importance of finding balance and resilience in aging. He reads an end-of-life love letter that was in his book and talks about how to respond when someone makes an ageist gaffe. I can't wait for you to hear this episode. So let's get started. I'm Dr. Regina Kep. I'm a clinical geropsychologist, which means that I'm a psychologist who specializes with older adults and families. And this is the Psychology of Aging podcast, your go-to resource for mental health and aging. Stephen Petro, thank you so much for joining me today on the Psychology of Aging podcast and talking about your new book, stupid things I won't do when I get old, which when I started reading this, I was, I thought, or actually your publisher reached out to me and asked if I would interview you. And I was like, Oh, I don't know if I want to interview somebody about a book that says stupid things I won't do when I get old. I thought, well, will your anti-ageism match my anti-ageism? And I have a pretty self-righteous even though I'm not even an older adult, pretty self-righteous anti-ageism. And then I started reading your book and I couldn't put it down. And I was, I just fell in love with you and your, the way you tell stories and just your transparency. And, and I'd love it if you would share a little bit about how you named your book and what you're hoping to achieve with it. So, um, well, first of all, it's just great to be with you. I've been looking forward to this. And, you know, the title is, it's a little bit out there. And I, the book was based on an essay I did for the New York Times about four years ago. And that essay came about after I was observing my parents as they got into their 70s. And I had just turned 50. Um, you know, and I saw that they were making decisions that were not really in their best interest. And they were, they were sort of small things like my mother loved her home decor. She wouldn't pick up the throw rugs that my dad kept tripping over and fall. Um, uh, so I just kept like adding to this list. I got to about a hundred. And then because I often write about things for the newspapers, I wrote about it and it was under the headline things I will do differently when I get old. And so, um, it was much more um, milk toast in, in tone. 
uh, it still got a ton of attention because it was on the most read list for, for about two weeks. And then people started sending their lists to me. And I must have gotten two, three, more than 300, actually. Wow. I was like, I thought I was doing this thing in private. I had my own, own little like shame bubble about, you know, being a spy. And then, um, you know, all these other people are doing it. And I realized we felt badly. We felt like we were doing something wrong. We were finger pointing at those that we loved. And yet we loved them. And, you know, I, so I use my parents mostly here as the narrative arc of, of this book. And really as a way in the moment, it was to try to help them make better decisions, less, less stupid ones. And for me, you know, as, as I got to that point, and I have to say, like yesterday, I'm supposed to be moving some furniture in this cabin that I'm staying at, and my friend didn't show up. So, hey, I did it by myself. Hey, stupid. You know, my back is all tweaked out, and you know, I've got my cushion here. And But, um, you know, so the, one, of the, one of the main points of the book is try to be a little bit more aware, try to be a little bit more mindful about the decisions that we make on such a frequent basis that, you know, that can impact how we feel about ourselves, how we feel about our lives, and especially as, as we get older. Um, so, um, and then the title itself was, um, it was written by a committee, and everyone loved this as soon as the first person said it. And I was kind of dragged in slowly, um, because, you know, you know, I write a lot about civility and treating people with respect. And one could argue this is not the most respectful type. And in fact, when I first started promoting the book, a friend of mine who was a, a gerontologist, she said, Stephen, I love you. But this title, this book, this doesn't sound like you. And I said, believe me, when you read the book, you'll see that Stephen wrote the book. And um, so that getting us to a place where we can use humor to talk about these topics that are really hard. Oh, and you do it so beautifully. What I love so much is that you you say what you won't do. And then you say you use your parents, but you also use yourself. And then you put yourself in the, the sort of hot seat and share, okay, I'm not going to do this. Like I'm never going to dye my hair. Right. And, then, and then you dye your hair. And then it's a big <laughs> fiasco. You know, and, um, yeah, I mean, it was just awful. But I, my, my, my haircutter said he had, you know, this great new technique and no one would know. And I would look younger. And I was, I was working in the digital um, space then. And I was like, I think at 40, I was the third oldest out of, you know, 500 people. And um, so he did it. And I came out, as my friend Vince said, looking like a trashy secretary from Staten Island. He meant no disrespect to either secretaries or to the borough of Staten Island. He meant um, to sort of get me to say, what did you do, Stephen? And I had sort of, sort of fallen prey to what especially a lot of guys do, which is they think, you know, no, they think no one will notice. And then, you know, you get like a total die job, um, inadvertently or advertently, and you've really done something that's... Um, counterproductive. So I, you know, I, I was doing a video shoot, like in two days, I was going to New York, I went to a color correction specialist, spent a lot of money. Anyway, it was a really good lesson in either going to a better hair colorist, um, or starting that process of self acceptance of, of who I am. And um, this is this is my real color. 
Um, sometimes I use um, that gray for men stuff or whatever, but um, oh, it looks great. Old habits die die hard. So um, yeah, I do. I do put myself in, in the book in a vulnerable way too, because I thought I really thought it would be unfair to just say, oh, you know, mom and dad, you were you were dumb for doing this, and because we all do it, and that's that's kind of the point. Oh yeah. What you do so beautifully in the book is say, this is one stupid thing I'll never do. And then you do it and you learn the lesson from it. And then you're sharing these lessons and gifts really with all of us. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you have this, uh, you say, I'll never be afraid of falling or I'll, something like that. And then you go surfing and you're terrified of falling in the water. And, you know, you have all of these examples of, or I'll never lie about my age. And then, and then you get a divorce and you start dating and you lie about your age and then you can't, you want to fix it. And, and the system, the online dating system won't even let you change it. Like, can you change it now? Has that corrected? Most of those dating apps, but I think in Tinder, you can't change anything. You you know, if you chose the wrong handle, the wrong age, you are now this person unless you deactivate your account. And, um, but, uh, yeah, I, I was lying. And then I, I, it was making me begin to feel badly about myself, you know, and sort of, it was all these little things, you know, okay. He lies about his age. He had colored his hair. You know, I was sending out those birthday cards that were kind of snarky and, um, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to give you this card and it's going to say almost nothing because you might not live to, you know, more than 10 minutes after you get it kind of thing. So I was really, you know, I realized I was, propagating these stereotypes about what it means to be older. And and I know you know this, but I was kind of surprised to learn how, you know, what they call casual um, ageism or everyday ageism, you know, impacts our health, our mental health and shortens our life expectancy. So it's so important that we start to become aware of what we're doing to ourselves and and to those we love and change, change. And your book is a great sort of gift to helping us do that. I mean, each, each chapter is basically an example of what you won't do and Mm -hmm. then how either you did it or you learned a lesson with it. And, um, which is, was just so clever and friendly. And one of my favorite examples, and, and this wasn't what you won't, or I can't remember what you wouldn't do, but you talk about, um, your, your friendship with Denise, who is a 90 something year old friend, and you share about the importance of multi-generational relationships and mentorship. Mm-hmm. And that was such a beautiful story. And then, and then I, as I was preparing for this interview, I was learning more about you online. You know, I was researching more about you. And I learned that you had created or have a fellowship in your name for at the Virginia center for creative arts. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's to help uh, sponsor or provide a fellowship for LGBTQ journalists. Is that right? Well, Can you LGBTQ writers, emerging emerging um, writers, and um, I'm on the board of um, what's called the VCCA, and it's an art residency program for um, for writers, for visual artists, and for composers. And um, I've been going there about 15 years um, as a fellow, and then I realized, and this is part of also. The arc of the book, I realized, you know, now that I'm in my 60s, I'm 63, um, that it's time to start implementing the list and to start doing the things that uh, that I that I said that I would. And giving back um, was one of them. And 
It's been, it's been a very gratifying experience to, I think we're in our fourth year now, to have awarded um, this fellowship. I've gotten to know each of the individuals some. And it also reflects this, this shift of when I was younger, I was very focused on what people call the resume values. What um, degrees did I have? What jobs, what job titles, how much money, how many, how many, you know, when cloud existed as a social media platform, how many cloud followers I had. And you know, as, as I kind of passed through 60, I realized there's this other way to evaluate yourself. And it's called, it's sort of roughly called eulogy values, but it's really how, how do you want to be remembered by the people you came in contact with? And um you know, nobody really wants to be remembered by the number of club followers they had. And um, so it's in a very sort of conscious way, I've been trying to um, to do things that help others. You know, I, I, you know, I write about civility and kindness a lot. And that's like professional, Stephen. But I also, and I'm far from perfect in this. I just want to be totally frank about that. But in my day-to-day life, I try to be nicer. You know, I grew up in Manhattan. I probably didn't grow up being a person. You know, I had to elbow my way to get everything. I, you know, I lived on the subways. Uh, and we all, you know, we all came from backgrounds where we might not have become the person that we would like to be now. So um, I often take what's called um, the sacred pause. I learned that in meditation. So, you know, if you were to suddenly ask me something and I, oh, gosh, I don't know what to say here. I would just take that moment of a breath and a pause and then, and then answer you rather than sort of coming right out. And so in situations now, I try to take that pause and then do the better or the nicer thing. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't, to be, to be honest. I'm, I'm still quite human and wired. Oh, thank God. I'm not alone. No. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you for sharing, sharing that. I, because you're creating this fellowship it's such a beautiful example of mentorship and giving back and in a way that, you know, Denise gave to you. And, and I'm imagining that the fellows are younger, not at the stage in career that you are. So it's a great mm-hmm. opportunity to, to create multi-generational relationships like you talked about. Yes. And, um, you know, and Denise is just such a wonderful story. I met her when she was about 77 and I was, I think 39 or 40. And, I applied to be a tenant in her duplex in San Francisco. She was so busy. She couldn't schedule me for an appointment. She was doing water aerobics. She was still a cheerleader with, with three of her friends called the last um, hoorahs, the last hoorahs. And so she would go do like charity cheerleading things to cheer up people and, and so on. And she was copy editor on the local newspaper. So when I finally sat down with her and met her, I got the apartment, but she said to me, I am trying to surround myself with younger people because I want to stay connected. And also I realized this is her saying, you know, as I get older, my friends are passing. So we stayed friends for 20 years. She was 98 when she died. She had really a collection of uh, younger friends, 20 to 40 years uh, younger. And she was a mentor to me in many ways and also we were able to mentor her, especially on IT issues. You know, when she would get a new computer or a new iPhone, you know, she would call up her, her IT squad. Um, but I like to describe Denise um, as a role model, but also as what I call a perennial. 
know, she, literally she would have been greatest generation. I would have been millennial, so on and so forth. But we need to get out of those labels. We need to really kind of cross pollinate and um, and see each other for who we are and and have those connections and experiences. So um, as they say in the South, bless her heart, Denise. Now tell us what a perennial is. So I did not make up that term. It's I think the sociologist who, who um, came up with that, but it's really an individual who tries to connect across um, demographic boundaries and um, stay in touch, stay passionate, uh, and stay connected, regardless of, of their age. So you could, you know, you could be a perennial at 25. I like to, like to think that my nieces are that. You could be a perennial, perennial at my age, you know, in your 60s and in, in your 90s. It's, it's a lot about the psychology of aging or, or, or one's attitudes. And, um, you know, those don't, they don't get old in the same way that our bodies might get older over time. This is a very um, clever little device up there. But yeah. I mean, impacting your territory. So I don't want to do that because you're you're the expert. <laughs> you're closer to an older adult, though. So, <laughs> um, but perennial too in gardening, right? Isn't a isn't a perennial flower one that blooms in any season? In, in I think it's one who blooms year after year after oh, year, year after year. Okay, as thank you. To the annual, yeah. which you know, right, right, shot pony. Okay, thanks. Yeah. So I knew it had to do with blooming. Okay, so you're blooming year after year. You don't have an end, an expiration date. I have an expiration date. Like an annual. Mm -hmm. That's a very good metaphor. Since we were just talking about psychology of aging, um, in your book, you talk about a little bit about your, your history with depression. Mm -hmm. And finally, sharing about your experience with depression when you were 59. Mm -hmm. And even though you'd experienced it, I think since age 11, I think you had written about, can you share a bit about, um, one of my goals with this podcast is to help people and families who, um, you know, to kind of shed some of the stigma and shame around reaching out for mental health, especially for older adults who are, uh, too often left out of a conversation around mental health, engaging in mental health care, or talking about mental health concerns. Would you be open to sharing about your life with depression and how you manage it and what inspired you to sort of share about your mental health? You know, uh, I'm going to answer a little more broadly and then, and then be more specific. I, um, I suppose if I have a secret sauce to what I write about, it is using various aspects of my life to connect with others and to say, it's okay to um, to suffer from depression or to have had cancer or to have sexual dysfunction from time to time. Those are all topics that I've written about. And, um, you know, and with depression and especially with men, it's a really hard topic for guys to acknowledge. The symptoms are often very different than for women. And um, with all due respect to your profession, many, many professionals don't understand that. And I, I had a very good friend who, um, who died by suicide. I guess this was five or six years ago now. Mm -hmm. And I had never known that he was depressed, nor had his family or friends. And that was because he never talked about it. And we talked about so much. And I thought, here is something, here the door has been opened for me a little bit to see 
the deficit when you don't talk about this kind of pain that people hold. So I said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to try writing about it. And, um, about the same time I had um, interviewed Andrew Solomon, who I consider just a, a mentor in, in so many ways, you know, as a gay man, as a man who um, has suffered from and written about depression. And, you know, it's always helpful to have, have role models. Um, so you can see that you're not walking on a cliff that you just kind of fall off of. And, um, and that was published in the, in the times and, um, I was very gratified by the number of people who wrote me privately to say, you've made it okay for me to say, me too. This was before me too, me too. But, um, and um, that's what I, that's what I was hoping to do. And then, you know, to be able to point people to resources and in some ways to, um, you know, help uh, professionals in this field also start to, to realize that they should be looking for some different things than, than they might otherwise. And yeah. Uh, yeah, so thank you, thank you for asking about that. Thank you for sharing it. It's so important and relevant beyond even you know here, just here being this podcast. It's such an important part of human life. Um, and in the book, you are so open and transparent about your own experience. You mentioned living with cancer as a young man. You're personal mental health journey and your relationship journeys. And, you know, your being willing to share that has really also inspired me to be more courageous and generous. I think there is a generosity in you sharing your story. And I think it's inspired me to be more honest with my, or more, more open about sharing my own. So thank you for that. Is it appropriate for me to ask you in what ways? Sure. Yeah. So a couple of weeks ago, I had a podcast. I grew up in um, pretty stark poverty. So we were homeless until I was eight and um, ra- raised by my mom and um, my with my four brothers. And none of our uh, dads or bio dads, mm-hmm. I, I shared on that podcast, my bio dad is uh, a transgender woman. She transitioned later in life. So I'll use feminine pronouns for her, but I'll say bio dad so you can anchor her in my life. Um so I just shared a little bit about that. And I was, I was uh, kind of afraid to share it on the podcast because I was afraid it would just live on in perpetuity and I could never change it. And then I thought, well, so what, you know, so, mm-hmm. so what if it does? And, um, and I talked about how I didn't grow up with grandparents and, um, and how working with older adults sort of helped me to heal some of the wounds of abandonment in my life and not knowing grandparents and getting sort of modeling for that. Like you said, it's so important to have um, that mentorship so you can see what's possible for you. Even if you're from a historically disenfranchised group of people, like if you're LGBTQ or if you, you know, hold a ethnic minority identity, that's, you know, harm harmed in society and experiences a lot of trauma or, if you grew up in poverty like me and I had experienced a lot of um, abandonment and I talked about that and then how the opportunity to work with older men who had also abandoned their children mm-hmm. was a way for me to heal some of, even though it was my patients didn't know this about me, even just working through with somebody that journey or the process of um, remorse and grieving the loss of relationships and seeing you know, just what that looks like in older adulthood following abandonment 
was so uh, rewarding for me in terms of my own healing process. So that's a little bit about what I shared in the past. Well, thank you for, thank you for answering that for me. And, you know, there's, there's a courage and an honesty, you know, that I see in you and that I'm, you know, that I'm working for in myself. And this might be a little bit off topic, but, you know, we live in such a fractured and polarized world. I think that's really one of the biggest um, challenges to all of us, whether you're red, blue, purple, green. And the more that we can be authentic and be open about our strengths, but also our weaknesses and our fears, I think that is what connects us. And that is part of the human condition. Yeah. Um, so I think, I mean, I hadn't really thought about this book in that way, but that's partly what, what I'm seeing now that I'm, that I hope will come out of it, that if we can talk more, you know, about illness and about um, lack of independence and, you know, fear of, of death and dying, those are universal attributes and we're going to get closer to each other. And maybe, you know, maybe the red and the blue will you know, fade away a little bit more. I hope so. I hope that we can see common humanity. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right about transparency and vulnerability. And I actually don't think it's too far off topic. I think it's right in the sweet spot, the essence of why we do you ride and I do this podcast. So I think it's right on. Oh, thanks. Um, you, part of this, you know, in, in your book, I'm trying to make a link between what we just said and where I want to go next, but maybe there will be no link. Um, in your book, you talk about finding balance and this was such a a sweet chapter. I want to read a little excerpt. Um, so, so you talk about finding balance and, and you talk about being in San Francisco and there's an earthquake and you're in a high rise hotel or something. And it's, and it, this, this building is sort of designed for earthquakes. So you're moving a lot and it's intense. Will will you set the stage for us before I read this excerpt? What was it like to be in that building? So this was a very tall skyscraper and it was, um, it was an office building with these fantastic windows of the entire Bay Area. And I've been up there many times before. And then this earthquake started and the structural engineering on this building is meant to allow the building to sway with the seismic waves. Because if not, over will go the building. And that, um, that became a metaphor to me about what it means to, you know, to be resilient. And up until that point, I thought, well, you know, if you have, if you have something come at you, you need to have that fight and fear response and get rigid and hunker down. Like if that building had hunkered down, that we would have all gone over. So, you know, I think I talk in the section you're going to read about sort of learning to be more like a weeping willow and learning to have this kind of flexibility that will allow me to be resilient and um, and thrive in the end, something like that. Yeah. So you you said I survived, obviously, climbing back out from under a desk once the the tembler stopped. I'll skip more of the engineering gobbledygook, but that earthquake revealed to me that balance is not about stability or rigidity, but the ability to yield and move. And really, with this book, I really feel like you are helping us all and yourself, you're describing your yielding and moving through older adulthood and, and you're doing it with such balance and grace. And then later in the, the, that's my, yeah, my, 
write that. No, that's my that's my assessment of this book. But then later, this is what you do, right? You write about this yoga class and, and learning about balance. And you you say that the more quickly you can respond and make those adjustments, that's balance. Balance comes from adapting quickly. I think that was your yoga teacher, Susan. And and you then go on to say, my 60s are no time to mindlessly swallow the, help me with this, bromid, bromides, bromides, yeah, bromides, bromides of our day. Oh, thank you. Okay. Let me back up. My 60s are no time to mindlessly swallow the bromides of our day, which I've learned can be as unbalanced a diet as any, whether it's falling in a yoga class or falling short in life, I can see more clearly now that the coveted state of balance is not about stasis or symmetry, but flexibility and change. I love this. So I wanted to say that your book is just such a great opportunity for us all to sort of weather these earthquakes that come with life and um, maybe or maybe not with aging depends on your life. And um, but just how we could all I think this is a book for any age, really. Because for perennials, mm-hmm. because um, we could all learn the lessons that you're sort of laying out for us. Well, I, I do think it's it's for all ages because you know, no matter how old you are, you face you face challenges, and you know, a good life will teach us how to respond to those and give us a little bit more um, you know experience as as we get into the next set of them. And there's no reason to think that they are going to end. And often, you know, like an earthquake, there's really nothing that you can do to prevent that. But what you can do is do the work within yourself to be adaptable, to be flexible, to not have a fear response and to, you know, to grasp it in some way and um, and to go forward with that. Oh, just like the engineers built that building, you have some, some element of control to sort of build a healthier, a healthy lifestyle for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and, you know, and one, one point I make in the book that, that matters a lot to me is that in this culture, we have really conflated being older with being sick. Yeah. And, um, and as though they're both bad, Yeah. And, you know, I take a, I'd really take exception to that because, that is that is one of the bromides of, of this time. And you know, being older, you know, is not bad and in fact is good. Like like you know, and or, or it's you know certain neutral free. But you know, there is the experience, there's the wisdom, um, there's the um, you know, the nature of being a perennial and um and and having those kind of connections that you know they get overlooked in the imagery that we see, you know. I was just going through some things this morning and a friend of mine thought this was really funny. And I guess, well, I hadn't read the book yet because as of today, it's not out. And it was, an, it was, the text was, how does grandma delete a friend on Facebook? And then the image is her iPhone and she's got the white out and she's, you know, oh. and, you know, I thought that is so not funny. That is so mean, you know, perpetuating, you know, the stereotype that that anyone over 50s, you know, and then can poop when it comes to technology and, you know, and so on. And it's not as though, I mean, I have a really good sense of humor. And uh, so I, you know, I could see where somebody thought that, you know, was funny, but we need to look a little bit deeper at these, at these things as well and, and see there's, there's subtext and, you know, there are stereotypes and, and they're actually 
wrong and hurtful. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. I was just calling my husband out today on our walk, <laughs> not about that, that specific example, but another one that I won't yep. go into. And he received I'm it. Not going there and never get <laughs> no. in the middle of marriage. At the end of your book, there's a section, stupid things I won't do at the end. And I want to talk about um, a chapter that you have entitled, I won't die without writing letters to my loved ones. And this chapter you share about your friend Jackie and her letters to her 19-year-old son. But just a minute ago, we were talking about resilience. And here you have such a perfect example of resilience. You said once she understood the road ahead of her, so she was dying of cancer, she took charge of her future. And I think that's such a beautiful example of resilience. She knew she mm -hmm. had um, a, a deadline and, and she took charge. She was empowered and resilient. And it, it's, I think, a message we could all use. But as you these, these letters to her, her budding filmmaker, is it, are, were just so powerful. I was, I was like, Stephen, I think you might need to write me a letter before we end the interview. I think I'm going to need a little holding. Um, can you can you share a little bit about your relationship with Jackie and these letters? Jackie and I went to Duke together, so we were contemporaries. And she um she married a very good friend of mine, Doug Zinn, and uh, they had four kids, um, three boys and a girl. And um, I think it was around when she was fifty five, she was diagnosed with brain cancer, and she did everything possible, all out, numerous opinions, and. Um, and then she got to the point where she realized um, it wasn't going to work out for her. And so um, I didn't know this at the time, but Doug told me um, after she had died that in those last couple of weeks, and I believe she was in a wheelchair and actually could not use her right arm and she was right-handed, but she was writing three letters each to the kids, one, of, one for graduating from college, one when they got married, and I think then when they started a family and um, put an enormous amount of effort into them. And, and um, so Jerry kindly, kindly shared um, his first two letters and he's only received the first two letters. And so I'm just gonna read a paragraph here, but so that I want everyone to imagine this the way I saw them, which is she had perfect cursive handwriting, um, blue ink on white lined paper. And so there's so much personality in her handwriting as well. And um, it really matched, matched her overall. So, um, dear Jerry, my budding filmmaker, I know you have a lot of emotions running through you, as I did when my father died. But I was much older than you at the time, so I really can't begin to truly comprehend what you were feeling. I am so incredibly sorry that I had to die while you were so young, and I assume it sucks for you. Perhaps you can use some of these emotions and feelings in your upcoming works, assuming you continue to pursue film. And then she added one thing here. Let me assure you that I did absolutely everything I could to stay alive for as long as possible. I know you realize that having been with me at many of my treatments or tests, plus the acupuncture, tons of praying I also did. But for some reason, I just didn't make it as one of the chosen ones to be cured. But because of what I did, I'm sure I lived much longer than if I hadn't been in good shape to begin with. And 
she goes on and then she just signs it love comma mom. And, uh, I know how much, you know, this letter has meant to Jerry and, and his siblings, their letters. Um, but you know, we live in denial of the future and she saw the future coming at her. She realized she was unable to do anything more with that. She stepped up, she stepped in and she left a beautiful legacy to, to last over time. As you're reading that, I was just so tearful. I think it's a letter to Jerry, but it's also a letter I think to all of us and, um, and just how relationships live on and, the importance of these bonds and how to foster them even in end of life. It's just so beautiful. Okay. Okay. So now final question, since you are an advice and etiquette columnist and Mm -hmm. expert on civility, what is the etiquette around calling someone out for being ageist? So what is, what is the etiquette for criticizing someone who is ageist? Yeah. So say you're at a, on a walk with your husband (laughs) (laughs) or say you're at a dinner party or in a conference room filled with colleagues similar levels what's the etiquette for calling an out an ageist comment so i love that question and i've never been asked that question before so um you know i think it's all about respect even if someone makes a gaffe. And I'm going to say it's a gaffe because in my experience, very few people are purposely trying to hurt someone or some group. We do it, and I say we because I do it too from time to time. We do it inadvertently. And you know, so my advice in this situation would be, you know, don't don't make a big deal out of it in the group. Take this person aside, take your husband aside, and you know, and explain, do a little bit of education why that language might have been problematic, how others might have heard it. And also address the intent question, because often people will say, well, I didn't really mean to do that. And I believe that. But we also need to be thinking more, how do people understand what we do, what we say? And we're responsible for that. Um, so, so, you know, that's how I would. And I think ageism is often you know, it's not seen, you know, we're, we're very clear these days, well, this is racist, or this is homophobic, transphobic, misogynist. Ageism is still kind of acceptable. Um, and that that's part of the education that, that you and I are both doing here. Yeah. And you're helping to highlight ageism and also helping us to find our balance in the midst of illness, in the midst of typical aging. Mm-hmm. in the midst of body changes and so many things. So I, I love your book. I um, loved reading it. I laughed. I cried. It just, it was so warming and lovely. So thank you. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes where people can go and buy it. Well, it has been a pleasure to, to be with you today. And I just, I thank you for, for reading the book so closely and also for the background that you, you bring to this conversation. It really matters. It really deepened it. And um, and I appreciate that so much. Thank you. All right. That's all for today. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does make a difference. I'll see you next week. Same time, same place. Bye for now.